turning your copy of the scriptures or scroll in your Bible app to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19. Luke, chapter 19. Today we're going to be looking at verses 28 through 40. Luke 19, verses 28 through 40. In honor of the reading of God's holy word, would you please stand if you're physically able and follow along silently as I read aloud from Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 28. This is what the word of God says. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, He sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. You're likely aware that Queen Elizabeth II is dead. She died just over a year ago on September 8th, 2022. Her Reign of over 70 years is the longest of any British monarch and is the longest verified reign of any female head of state in history. Her successor was none other than her son, who was the heir apparent, the then prince and now King Charles III. Now, although he assumed the throne immediately after his mother's death, the ceremony in which his ascent to the throne is publicly acknowledged the coronation ceremony didn't take place until just a few months ago on the 6th of May, 2023. 2,200 guests from over 200 countries were invited. It was a gala event. There was, a music, there was music that was a mixture of pieces used at previous coronation ceremonies, as well as 12 new pieces, brand new pieces commissioned solely for this event. Charles took the coronation oath And then signed a written version of the oath. And then he knelt before the altar and prayed. He then received communion and was anointed with oil by the Archbishop of Canterbury. Next, King Charles was presented with several items such as spurs, armils, the sword of state, and the sword of offering. He touched them with his hand and then they were removed again. All the while, Psalm 71 was chanted in Greek by an Orthodox The king was invested with the stole royal, the robe royal, and the sovereign's orb, and presented with the sovereign's ring. He was then invested with the glove, the sovereign's scepter with the cross, and the sovereign's scepter with dove. Finally, 
King Charles was crowned by the Archbishop of Canterbury with the Archbishop and then the congregation chanting, God save the King. At the moment of his crowning, the church bells of the Westminster Abbey rang and 21 gun salutes were fired at 13 locations around the United Kingdom and on deployed Royal Navy ships. And 62 gun salutes and a six gun salvo were fired from the Tower of London and Horse Guards Parade. King Charles then received a blessing read by the Archbishop of York, the Archbishop of Thyatira and Great Britain, the moderator of the Free Churches, the Secretary General of Churches Together in England, the Cardinal Archbishop of Westminster, and the Archbishop of Canterbury, representing the Anglican, Greek Orthodox, nonconformist, ecumenical, and Roman Catholic traditions, respectively. This was, in very brief summary, the coronation of King Charles that took place just a few months ago. Of all the coronations of any earthly ruler that has ever been held, no human being has come even close to deserving the honor that King Jesus deserves. No one can light a candle to the infinite light of his sovereignty and his majestic glory. Despite that, the account we just read from the Gospel of Luke just moments ago couldn't be more different from the celebrations of every lesser ruler that has been or will be celebrated. The text we just read shows a a, a loud event, a crowded event, a seemingly celebratory event. But I think we'll see by the end of our time together that this was anything but the celebration it appears to be as we simply read through the text. So let's pick it up in Luke chapter 19 uh, in verse 28. Verse 28 says... And when he had said these things, now that calls our attention to the things that have happened recently. And so just as a quick reminder, this took place not long after Jesus healed two blind men, which we read about in Luke chapter 18, and saved the chief tax tax collector, the wee little man Zacchaeus, earlier in Luke chapter 19. Those events certainly would cause a stir, right, among the people and would have increased the crowd that was going to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, but also fanboying Jesus as well. And so they would have heard Jesus teach the parable of the ten minas that Pastor Brad preached about last week, which immediately precedes our text today. So again, in verse 28, when Luke says, and when he had said these things, those are the things Luke is referring to. So verse 28 says, when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem, where he drew near to Bethpage, and Bethany. Now, Bethany was not a strange place to Jesus. Jesus often stayed in Bethany when he visited Jerusalem. It was where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived. Let me rephrase that. It was where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, the guy who died, Lazarus, the guy who was buried, Lazarus, the guy who, as the old King James says, stinketh, but Lazarus, who is now alive, this is where he lived. John's account in John chapter 12 said, When the large crowd of the Jews learned about the fact that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, which I think we could all, I'd want to see him, right? Like, is this, I heard about this, this guy was dead, he was buried, and then all of a sudden he's alive, that's probably worth seeing. And so this was the reason that people were gathering there as well. They were there for the Passover. They were there because they wanted to follow Jesus. Some were there because they wanted to meet Jesus. And others, quite frankly, wanted to meet Lazarus. Pick it up in verse 30. Uh, In verse 30, it says that he, Jesus, sent two of the disciples saying, 
go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. Then he goes on to say, if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. That brings us to point number one. Jesus is God beyond the shadow of a doubt. Jesus is God beyond the shadow of a doubt. This account proves that Jesus Christ is God. Not like God, not similar to God, not close to God. Jesus is God. The striking detail with which Jesus predicted exactly what would unfold is an unbelievably clear example of his omniscience. The fact that Jesus knows everything and that's an attribute of God and God alone. Keep in mind, Jesus had never been uh, to, to, to Bethpage before. No arrangements were made on a human level for these things to take place. Yet he told the disciples that he was sending they would find a donkey, and they did. More than that, he was specific in saying they'd find a cult, and they did. And not just any cult, but one that no one had ever ridden. He also knew that they'd be asked by the owner of the cult why they were untying it, which we could understand, right? Two strange people, like if somebody came up and got in your car, you would probably say, what are you doing? That's my car. And so this is the first century version of, hey, that's my car. And so why are you untying the colt? And that they could just drop his name. Just say that the Lord has need of it and it would be fine. No further explanation would be necessary. The Lord, who again, raised Lazarus from the dead, needed the colt. If the Lord needs the colt, he can have the colt. Jesus predicted all of this with pinpoint accuracy. It happened exactly as he said, even down to the very wording of that brief conversation that would take place between the two disciples and the owner of the cult. Jesus's omniscience, the fact that he knows all things completely, proves that he is God. But here's something else. These things that were happening were fulfilling messianic prophecies of old, prophesied by Old Testament prophets literally centuries before this moment. This very event is even more proof that Jesus is God. The precise timing of the Messiah's entry to Jerusalem, prophesied by Daniel and fulfilled by Jesus. That's what we're, we're looking at right here. In fact, in your outline, you'll see that I have a portion uh, from the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 9, uh, beginning in verse 24. Let's read that. 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with the squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall, shall be war. Desolations are decreed. 
Now, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know that there is no shortage of websites, no shortage of groups, no shortage of peoples who try to figure out exactly what God himself says you cannot figure out. And people are like, I feel like I can, I can probably figure it out. And so they make timelines and charts and all sorts of theories as to when the Lord is going to come back. And even though the Lord says clearly through his word that nobody knows the day or the hour, they're like, well, maybe we, don't know. Maybe we can figure out the month. Maybe we figure out the week. We may not know the day or the hour, but I'm pretty sure we can narrow it down. And you cannot. And everybody who tries to has failed. And I believe that the Lord is coming soon because the Bible says that the Lord is coming soon. His definition of soon is different from my definition of soon. It's been thousands of years, but the Lord is coming soon. And everybody who's tried to prove that he did come or try to prove that he, he is coming on this particular day has just been wrong. And that's no surprise because the word of God says, you're not supposed to know this. Not even Jesus knows this. You're never going to know it. And oftentimes what they will do is they will look at biblical passages that aren't necessarily meant to prove his future coming, but to prove the coming that he came in many, many years ago. And Daniel 9, verses 24 and following, is one such passage. Uh, This is a passage that is not to have us looking forward from where we sit right now in history, but proves that Jesus was God. The exact day that the Lord chose to enter Jerusalem fulfilled one of the most remarkable prophecies of the Old Testament. Daniel's prophecy of the 70 weeks, which we just read. Through Daniel, God predicted that the time from Artaxerxes' decree ordering the rebuilding of the temple in 445 BC until the coming of the Messiah would be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Seven weeks and 62 weeks, I know it's early, that is 69 weeks total. The literal translation is seven sevens and 62 Sevens, seven being a common designation for a week. Now, in the context of that passage, the idea is 69 weeks of years or 69 times seven years, which, just trust me, comes to a total of 483 Jewish years, which consisted of 360 360 days each, which was common in the ancient world. Now, that's more math than you are prepared to do on a Sunday morning. But trust me that if you carry the one and you solve for X and you do on one side of the equation and you do on the other side of the equation, one thing remains undeniably clear. Whatever may be the precise chronology, Jesus Christ is the only possible fulfillment of Daniel's prophetic timetable. The fact that the Messiah would ride a cult was prophesied by Zechariah and fulfilled by Jesus. In Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9, he said this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so this event is unbelievably uh, epic when it comes to viewing Jesus as God and as the very Messiah that Old Testament prophets of old have been talking about for centuries. There are literally hundreds of messianic prophecies that Jesus fulfilled to the letter. You know that? Hundreds of messianic prophecies. And not just like general prophecies, like what people nowadays claim to be prophets, and they'll say, like, uh, the Lord has said that something great is going to happen in this city. And it's like, well, what does that mean? Does that mean the humidity will go down? Does that mean the fireworks will be clear and labored? I don't know what that means. Like, not just these general, like, something great will happen, and then, you know, 
Was that great? Was it the great meal I had? Was it the fact that a school opened? Like, we don't know what that means. These are specific prophecies that Jesus fulfilled to the letter. And there are hundreds of them. Hundreds of them. For example, God promised Abraham he would establish an everlasting covenant with Isaac's offering in Genesis 17. Fulfilled by Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. God promised Isaac the whole world would be blessed by his descendant. He said that in Genesis 28. The descendant is Jesus, which we're told in Luke 1 and Luke 3. Jacob prophesied Judah would rule over his brothers in Genesis chapter 49. Jesus is the king from the tribe of Judah, which we're told about in Luke chapter 1. Moses promised God would atone for his people in Deuteronomy 22. Jesus' sacrifice is that atonement. We read about that in Romans chapter 3. In Psalm 2... It's prophesied that God will tell someone that he is their father. He will tell the Messiah that he is their father. In Luke chapter 3, God told the crowd at Jesus' baptism that he is, in fact, Jesus' father. In Psalm 69, David says the Messiah will be rejected by his siblings. In Mark 3, we read about Jesus' brothers refusing to believe who he was until after the resurrection. The scriptures prophesied that the Messiah would cry out that God had forsaken him. Check. That his enemies would mock and insult him? Check. That he'd be teased and mockingly told to have, why don't you have God save you? Check. That his hands and feet would be pierced? Check. That his clothing would be divided? Check. That he'd commit his spirit to God the Father? All of these were fulfilled. I mean, that's just a sampling. There's literally hundreds of which were fulfilled by Jesus himself. A gentleman by the name of Dr. J. Barton Payne. He was a conservative evangelist, theologian, and apologist. He taught at Wheaton College and Covenant Theological Seminary. He was on the committee of translators for the New American Standard Bible and the New International Version. In theological terms, we call this guy kind of a big deal. He was a widely respected Old Testament scholar. Dr. Payne found 574 verses in the Old Testament that point to or describe or reference the coming Messiah. Alfred Edersheim was a a, a Jewish convert to Christianity. He was a biblical scholar, authored, I think, about a dozen books, but was known especially for his book entitled The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, a phenomenal work that I am blessed to own and would recommend to you. Absolutely phenomenal reference book. He found 456 Old Testament verses referring to the Messiah or his times. And so there's a question, right? How many prophecies did Jesus fulfill? It's difficult to answer uh, because should we count only direct messianic prophecies? What about repeated prophecies? When Jesus fulfilled them, do we count that as two prophecies fulfilled? So it's, it's hard to count. But conservatively speaking, Jesus fulfilled at least... 300 prophecies in his earthly ministry. Jesus' fulfillment of messianic prophecies proves he is God. This very event is even more proof that Jesus is God. Now, we have been moving at a pretty fast clip. Let's just pause for a moment. And let me ask you, what about you? How do you feel about the fact that Jesus is God? We just spoke of Jesus' omniscience, right? The fact that he knows everything. 
and nothing is hidden from him. He knows me better than anyone. He knows me better than me. As a Christian, that gives me great hope, right? Great joy, great peace, knowing that he truly knows all things, that he's never been confused. He's never been befuddled or bewildered. He's never been surprised. It occurred to me that nothing has ever occurred to him because he knows all things. And so that makes me feel nothing but but positive emotions of gratitude, of excitement, of joy and peace. King Jesus knows it all. But here's the thing. Not everyone reads or hears those words exactly the same. Let me see if I can demonstrate that for you. Some of us here, Jesus knows everything. And we're like, yes, yes, he does. And we celebrate. While others hear the same three words, but they hear it like this. Jesus knows everything. And they're petrified. Uh, The omniscience of Christ is not something that people all react to in the same way. The same three words, Jesus knows everything. Some of us are like, woohoo! And others among us are like, I kind of wish he didn't. Jesus' deity, the fact that he is very God, serves to undergird my faith, to strengthen my faith. It reminds me that he really was worthy to die in my place. That God the Father really would accept God the Son as a substitute for me because why wouldn't he? Jesus is not like me. He's so much better than me and worthy of acceptance. So he really could pay for my sin and did pay for my sin. When I hear Jesus is God, I say yes and amen and one day I'll stand before God and will be accepted in the beloved. But others among us hear Jesus is God and they're petrified. That might be you. And quite frankly, you have every reason to be. If you have not submitted your life to Christ, if you have not bowed your heart and mind to him since you live your life as if you are autonomous, since you live your life as if you are God, when you're told things like God knows everything and that Jesus is God, your response is rightfully one of fear because you are reminded that there is a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. You are reminded that Jesus is the ultimate judge. You are reminded that he is God and you are not. What about you? Jesus knows everything. Jesus is beyond the shadow of a doubt, God. How does that make you feel? And what, that, what might that be indicative of when it comes to your relationship or lack thereof with him? Uh, let's pick it up in verse 37. Uh, Luke 19, verse 37. It says, as he was drawing near, uh, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. Now, I realize what this looks like. I realize what this sounds like. I realize what you and I picture in our minds as we read through this particular text. It seems 
somewhat similar, like a first century version of the event I described earlier today. It seems like the coronation of a king. If you look in verse 36, it says, and as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. That was an act of not just submission to Christ, but like eager submission. We don't have time to look there today, but you'd see something similar in 2 Kings in chapter 9, which is the account of when Jehu was anointed as king. This is an eager and excitement. That, that's what that looks like. When you're, when you're laying down your cloaks like that, that's a sign of like, not only welcome, but like we cannot wait to be ruled by you. Uh, we cannot wait to be uh, led by you. It's a sign of not just submission, but eager submission. There's at a, a few different crowds of people here, one of which was made up of Jesus' disciples. Now, that's not only the 12. It includes them, but it's also all who are already followers of Jesus. Then there's another group made up of people who wanted to see the man whose reputation preceded him. Uh, That is Jesus, the man who gives sight to the blind. This is the man who raised Lazarus from the dead. And then there's another group of people that also want to see Lazarus himself, thinking he's a follower of Jesus. He was dead. He's no longer dead. That's kind of weird. I want to see what this guy's like. And so there's there's a huge crowd here. And it appears to be a coronation of sorts, a celebration, a welcoming. And it was, but... Luke gives us insight as to what's behind their fervor, what's behind their excitement in verse 37, that if you're reading quickly, you might, you might pass right over it. So I want to call to our attention. So let's look at verse 37 again. It says, as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice. Here it is. For all the mighty works they had seen. Verse 38 says they were saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. But did you see that at the end of verse 37? It says they were praising God. They were rejoicing. They were celebrating for all the mighty works that they had seen. So these people weren't haters of Jesus. Not yet. They were big fans, true fans. But note the reason behind their fandom. It's for all the mighty works that they had seen. We knew that because we read it here. But keep in mind, Jesus, who is God, who is omniscient, knows it right then and there. Right? He knows it right then and there, beyond the shadow of a doubt. It, it looks like, uh, it sounds like, Jesus is walking with a crowd that is anxious to welcome him. But he is not. He's walking by people who are thinking, gosh, if this guy can raise the dead, if he can restore sight to the blind, he can do all of these things. If he can walk on water, if he can cast demons out, gosh, surely he can judge the enemies of Israel. Uh, Surely he can rule and reign and restore our land to us, our society to us, our way of living to us. Surely he can save us from the many woes we experience under the Roman Empire. He's not walking by people who love him. He's walking by the MAGA crowd, the make Israel great again crowd. They're only happy to see him because of what they know he can do and what they hope he will do. But Jesus is God. 
Jesus is omniscient. He knows he is walking to his death. He knows he's walking by people who once they see he hasn't come to solve all their problems, once they see he hasn't come to make Israel great again, these people will not just lose interest in him, but will call for his death in just a matter of days. They will flip. The title of the sermon is Alone in a Crowd because that's what Jesus was. Surrounded by people surrounded by noise, palm branches, celebration, clothes being thrown on the ground so he can walk. I mean, all the things. But he knows their hearts. He knows their minds. And he, quite frankly, knows where he's headed and what he's about to do. And he knows what so many of these people will be shouting only days later when they'll call for his death, which brings us To point number two. You need to love Jesus primarily because of what he did for you, not for what he can do for you. See, here's the thing. Jesus can do a lot. That's fair to say, right? He can do, in fact, he can literally do anything. He is God. Not only can he do anything, he can do anything with ease. It's not hard for him. He doesn't have like a pre-workout routine. This is not hard for him. He raised Lazarus from the dead by speaking. This is not hard for him. He spoke creation into existence. It's not like he needs to summon powers from other places. It's not like he needs to make sure he has all the supplies. He speaks and it happens. He can do anything and do it with ease. But friends, this is the thing. If you're more enamored by what he can do for you in this life, but not so moved by what he did for you that impacts eternal life, you'll turn your back on him. You'll turn your back on him just like these people did. Jesus didn't die for you to have your best life now. He certainly helps He certainly provides peace. He certainly provides strength. He gives us hope through his word. He's not uninvolved. He's very involved. But friends, what's life-changing, life-altering, soul-stirring, isn't so much what Jesus has the ability to do for you now, but what he did for you back then by dying on the cross as a satisfactory substitute for your sins so that you might be saved if that's not what's moving you to love Jesus and what's moving you to love Jesus is the potential for him to make something better now uh, something better in this life something it might even be a good and godly thing I'm not saying it's a maniacal thing I'm saying you want health you want safety for your children you want uh, to be profitable in all that you do so that you can serve him. I mean, you, you might want very good things. I actually trust that you want very good things. But if your love for Jesus is all about potential gain in this life, what will happen is if he doesn't deliver, if it's not his will to deliver in that way, if you don't get that job, if your 
kid doesn't get that grade, if you don't make that team, if you don't get that health diagnosis that you were hoping, you'll turn your back on them. We're no different from the Israelites. We're unbelievably similar. And so you need to realize that there's a big difference between loving God for what he can do and loving God for what he did do. And so in the time we have left, what I want to do is I want to show you three results of loving Jesus for what he's done. Three results of loving Jesus for what he's done. They're in your outline and they're incredibly different results than if you only love Jesus for what he can do or what he might do. Three results of loving Jesus for what he's done. The first one is this. You can stop trying to impress God and live in the freedom of being accepted by God. You can stop trying to impress God and see what it's like to live in the freedom of being accepted by God. Uh, In your Bible, would you turn over to the book of Romans? Uh, The book of Romans and go to chapter 3. We're going to go to two different places in the book of Romans. The first one of which is chapter 3. Pick it up in verse 20. It says, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation as a substitute as a a wrath absorbing sacrifice whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus skip down to verse 28 For we hold that no one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Do you see what Paul is saying there? He's saying the law was never created to save. We're not living a life of trying to impress God. We're not trying to earn his favor. But when we realize what Jesus did on the cross, we don't live a life to try to earn his favor, to try to earn brownie points. We live a life of worship because we have his favor. It impacts and changes absolutely everything. And so on the outside, what we do might not change. We might all be do-gooders, and that's great. But we're doing it for a very different reason. We're not doing it hoping that our good outweighs our bad. We're not doing, doing it hoping that the scales would be tipped in our favor. We're doing it because the scales have been wiped out in our favor because Jesus Christ obliterated the scales, and we have his perfect record, and so now we live a life in response to the favor that we have from God. If you love Jesus for what he's done... You can stop trying to impress God and live in freedom of knowing that you have been accepted in the beloved. That's one of the results of loving Jesus for what he's 
done. Uh, The second one, letter B, you can stop living under the weight of guilt and shame because you are in Christ. You're in Christ. Flip over five chapters to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And look at this good news that we read in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's just stop right there. For those who are in Christ Jesus, for those who believe in Christ, who have put their faith in him, put their trust in him, really believe that what he did on the cross was enough, that God was really satisfied in his payment on our behalf, that God really raised him from the dead, that we will benefit from that as well, that his righteous record has been passed to us, and that because he rose, we too will rise. For those who are in Christ Jesus, there is how much condemnation? Say it with me. No condemnation. Not less condemnation. Not odds are you won't be condemned. Zero. None. Nada. Zilch. Niente. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus. That's incredibly good news. That's incredibly good news. That's incredibly good news for those of us who are in Christ because we realize we're not worrying about what side of Jesus we stand on. We're not worried about the mood that he would wake up in. Did he wake up on the wrong side of the bed because he never sleeps? But we're not worried about his altering mood or altering opinion of us because God's word tells us there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. And so we're not under the weight of guilt. We're not under the weight of shame because we are in Christ. And God's word tells us that we are in Christ if we believe in him. But here's the thing. If you love Jesus for what he's done, you're very moved by that. If you only love Jesus for what he can do, you're sitting there like this going, great, fat lot of good that does me. I'm hoping he does this. Yeah, 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 the cross, the death, I get it, the whole, the Easter, yeah, I love it. But I need him to do that. And so it's about what's primary and what's secondary. What's primary and what's secondary. Friends, there are things that I pray for on a daily, regular basis that I hope God does. Don't hear me saying I don't, I don't hope God, like all I care about is what he did. I don't care about what he, oh no, I care a lot about what he does. A whole lot about what he does. There's ways I hope that he will move in my life, in the lives of people I know and love. There's even ways I hope he moves in the lives of people I don't really like. So there's a lot that I, I got a laundry list of things I hope God does. I, and I tell him without any shame, without any apology, I know you can do this. I hope you would do this. I know you can do this. Oh, please do this. But the reason I'm coming before the throne of grace The reason I am praying, the reason I am crying out to him isn't just because of what he can do. It's because of what he has done already. And it's like, since you took care of that, uh, since you've made me right with you, since you've changed my standing before you, I can now boldly come before you with everything that I have need of, everything that I have want of, because you've taken care of my biggest problem. What gets me up out of the morning, what gets me in my Bible, what gets me praying to God is not just for what he can do, but what he did do. And there's a very big difference. 
And so the second thing you can do if you are uh, loving Jesus for what he's done, you can stop living under the weight of guilt and shame because you are in Christ Jesus. And then finally, letter C, your life can be defined by what is real instead of what you feel. Uh, your life can be defined by what is real instead of what you feel. I don't know about you, but I feel a variety of emotions throughout most days. Uh, they don't swing so widely, but sometimes I'm just really happy to be alive. Sometimes I'm a little annoyed at something that just happened. Sometimes I'm driving and I'm like, man, what a beautiful day. And other times I'm driving and it's like, man, why do other people, why are they allowed to drive? And then sometimes I'm, I mean, sometimes I'm, I just, I, I just have a great, a great day at work. I feel like I'm in the zone. I feel like I'm doing well. And then other times I'm like, how, why do they have me? Why have they not fired me? Like I could just, you know, I'm sure you feel some days you're thrilled to be a parent and some days you can't stand being a parent. And some days you are frustrated with life and some days you're loving life. I'm not denying any of those feelings. We feel them all the time. But if I'm loving Jesus for what he's done, at the end of the day, that's in history, that's in eternity past, it can't be changed. And although my circumstances change, my relationships with people change, my relationships with family and friends and how I feel about work and other drivers and the lost and the saved and people I know I'll be in heaven with and I'm so glad and people I know I'll be in heaven with and hope I don't see them until I'm there. The way my feelings change don't, don't change my outlook on life because my outlook on life, my, the foundation upon which I'm building my life is something that can't be changed. Does, does, does that make sense? It doesn't change from day to day. It's the fact that what Jesus did on the cross for my sins is in history, it's forever, it's done, it's finished, and it's been paid in full. And so I'm not saying, I know, skip through life. I don't, do I strike you as a skip through life guy? Like, I don't skip through life. I've never been accused of being an optimist, just to be honest with you. I'm a, a realist, borderline, which really is what pessimists in denial say, right? No, I'm a realist. I'm not somebody who just like pumps sunshine everywhere he goes. But I have a joy, a consistent, constant joy, which isn't the same as happiness, but a consistent, constant joy because of what Jesus has done for me that can never, ever be changed. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17 says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are what? Unseen. The things that are seen are transient. They change, they move on. But the things that are unseen are eternal. Again, the title of the sermon is Alone in a Crowd. Maybe that's a great description of how you feel sometimes. Maybe it's how you feel today. Hey, maybe it's how you feel most Sundays if you come to church. Sitting in an auditorium filled with people, the vast majority of which express genuine, heartfelt joy, genuine gratefulness and a genuine love for Jesus Christ and you sit there and you go I'm just not there I, I just don't I just don't get it like I'm 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 happy to be here evidenced by the fact that you're here I, I, I'm willing to come but this love this passion this joy I'm just not there and so I want to call two things to your attention 
First, I hope you take comfort in the fact that, although certainly not in the same way, Jesus knows what it's like to feel alone in a crowd. King Charles likely knows what it's like to feel alone in a crowd, right? The lives of those who are famous, the lives of those in nobility and places of prestige, they're incredibly lonely. They have a lot of things and a lot of people. They're incredibly lonely. But here's one thing Charles can't say. He can't say, I know what it's like to be you. He does not. Like categorically, he, does, he just doesn't. He has no concept of what it's like to be anyone in this room. Literally spent his whole life living categorically different from the way you live your life. He knows what it's like to be alone, but he doesn't know what it's like to be you. Jesus, however, is a man of sorrows. Jesus Christ is a man who is acquainted with grief. He lived his life on earth to know your pain, to know your heartache, your grief, your, your dashed hopes, your suffering. The writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is not like some high priest who is unable to sympathize with you. But Hebrews 4.15 says he's tested in every way as we are. I hope that you take comfort in knowing that Jesus is not one who is in like a castle on high, unable to associate with peasants like us. He's unbelievably sympathetic. He's unbelievably compassionate. And when you say, does Jesus care? You can say along with the hymn writer, oh yes, he cares. I know he cares. But the other thing I want you to know is this. If you're sitting there and you're thinking, I'm, I, do, I kind of feel like I'm alone in a crowd. When I'm, around, when I'm around Christians, I just, they're nice, but there's something they have that I don't have. It's not just a, and it's not just a, fuzzy, syrupy, sweet thing. Like there's something genuine they have that I don't have. I just want to call to your attention one thing. That most times in life, feelings follow obedience. Now, feelings follow obedience. Not the other way around. But feelings, usually when feelings come, they're the result of obedience. They don't precede obedience, but come as a result of Obedience. And so you may not have all the fuzzy feels uh, that other people seem to have. But today, while you are alive, today while you are alive and kicking, you can choose to believe in Jesus Christ and be saved. You can choose to say, I'm giving him my life because I believe he gave his life for me. You can say, not because of what Jesus can do for me, but because of what Jesus has done for me, I'm going to believe in him. I'm going I'm to trust in his word. I'm going to believe that my heavenly father was satisfied with what Jesus did on my behalf. And I'm going to choose to walk in obedience to him. Not because of what he could do for me, but because of what he did for me then. That option is available to all who are alive. The opportunity to come to Christ to all who are alive is there, and it is real, and he makes good on his promises every time. If you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. And in some circles, you'll feel more alone in a crowd. But in the circles that matter most, particularly the circle of eternity, particularly the family of God, particularly where you're headed after this life, you will never be alone again.
Lord, we come to you grateful for what you have done for us, uh, thankful, Lord, for your love for us, and praying, Lord, that you would cause your word uh, to run forth, that you would today, for those of us who know you and love you, oh God in heaven, would you uh, cause us to be stirred anew with the joy of our salvation. And Lord, for those of us who know you not, would you cause us to truly bow to you as king? Would you call people to submit their lives to you, perhaps for the very first, likely for the very first time? And would you draw them unto yourself? Would you save them? You who know what it's like more than any of us to be alone in a crowd, our sympathetic savior, our compassionate savior, draw near to the brokenhearted now. Draw near to the suffering now. Call people to yourself now and give them life and peace eternal. We pray in Jesus' name.